Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the morning report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Paul Frank. Today we'll be discussing case 31, arteriovenous fistula placement, from our textbook, Anesthesiology and Critical Care Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. Our patient is a 68-year-old woman with worsening renal function and impending end-stage renal disease due to hypertensive nephropathy. She scheduled for placement of an arteriovenous fistula in anticipation of beginning hemodialysis. She has never had dialysis before. She takes lisinopril, clonidine, and carvedilol for blood pressure control. In the preoperative area, her vital signs are blood pressure 185 over 90 millimeters of mercury, pulse 67 beats per minute, respirations 14 breaths per minute, and oxygen saturation 88% on 4 liters per minute nasal cannula. How does the kidney regulate blood pressure? In response to decreased renal blood flow or in response to beta-1 stimulation, the kidney secretes an enzyme called renin. Renin converts angiotensinogen, produced by the liver, to angiotensin-1. Angiotensin-converting enzyme in the lungs converts angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2. Angiotensin-2 causes vasoconstriction, and it also stimulates the secretion of aldosterone from the adrenal glands. Aldosterone stimulates the reabsorption of salt and water by the kidneys. How does lisinopril work? Lisinopril is known as an ACE inhibitor. It inhibits the activity of angiotensin-converting enzyme, thereby stopping the conversion of angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2. Since angiotensin-converting enzyme also metabolizes bradykinin, ACE inhibitors cause elevated levels of bradykinin, which can cause a cough. It should also be noted that ACE inhibitors can cause renal agenesis in a fetus and should therefore be avoided in women of childbearing age. How does clonidine work? Clonidine is a centrally acting alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. It causes a decrease in sympathetic tone. Clonidine can cause bradycardia and sedation. It should also be noted that abrupt cessation of clonidine can cause rebound tachycardia and hypertension. How does carvedilol work? Carvedilol is an antagonist of alpha and beta adrenergic receptors. Antagonism of beta-1 receptors results in decreased heart rate and decreased renal production of renin. Antagonism of alpha-1 receptors results in systemic vasodilation. What physiologic changes are expected in patients with end-stage renal disease? 
End-stage renal disease affects almost every organ system of the body. It can cause restrictive lung disease, premature atherosclerosis, hypocalcemia leading to secondary hyperparathyroidism and renal osteodystrophy, anemia, platelet dysfunction, electrolyte and acid-base derangements, and in the case of hypertensive nephropathy, as with our patient, this chronic hypertension can lead to a thickened, non-compliant left ventricle. This results in a lower threshold for pulmonary edema in the setting of volume overload. Over the last several days, the patient has had shortness of breath worse with lying flat. She even slept sitting up in a chair last night. She does not ordinarily use supplemental oxygen at home. So you get a chest x-ray, which is shown here on the right. What's going on? This chest x-ray shows bilateral infiltrates worse in the dependent parts of the lung, the lower lobes. This is most consistent with volume overload causing pulmonary edema. The patient also complains of chest pain worse with deep inspiration. On auscultation of her chest, you hear a rhythmic rubbing sound. Lab studies show a blood urea nitrogen, BUN, of 94 milligrams per deciliter. You order an electrocardiogram, shown here. What's going on? This electrocardiogram shows diffuse ST segment elevation. This ECG, along with her symptoms, the findings on physical exam, and her laboratory studies, are consistent with uremic pericarditis. Trend serial troponins to rule out acute coronary syndrome. Check an echocardiogram to rule out large pericardial effusion. What are the indications for urgent or emergent hemodialysis? Here, the mnemonic AEIOU can be helpful. A is for acidosis. This can be caused by retention of organic acids or by loss of bicarbonate. E is for electrolyte abnormality, such as hyperkalemia or hypermagnesemia. I is for intoxication. Compounds such as ethylene glycol or salicylates can be removed via hemodialysis. O is for volume overload. U is for uremia, which can manifest as pericarditis, platelet dysfunction, or even altered mental status. Our patient meets at least two of these criteria for urgent hemodialysis, volume overload and uremia. Since the patient does not have access for dialysis, you plan to place a dialysis catheter in her right internal jugular vein. How is a central venous catheter placed? After consenting the patient, position the patient in the Trendelenburg position with their head turned to the contralateral side. Don a sterile gown and sterile gloves. Apply a sterile prep solution and a sterile drape to the patient's anterolateral neck. Flush all ports on the central venous catheter with sterile saline before beginning the procedure. Next, ask a non-sterile assistant to place the ultrasound probe and some ultrasound gel in the sterile ultrasound sleeve that you will hold in your hand. It is important that your non-sterile assistant not contaminate the field. Next, put some sterile ultrasound gel on the patient's neck and use the ultrasound probe to identify the internal jugular vein and the common carotid artery. Position your ultrasound probe directly over the internal jugular vein. If the patient is awake, create a skin wheel with local anesthetic where you will insert your needle. Next, insert your needle with the syringe still attached into the skin over the internal jugular vein and withdraw gently on the syringe as you advance the needle. Once there is return of dark venous blood, Gently put down the ultrasound probe, hold the needle still, and unscrew the syringe. Thread the guide wire through the needle into the vein. It should advance easily. Always make sure that some amount of the guide wire is still sticking out the back of the needle. Never advance the entire guide wire into the vein. Remove the needle and leave the guide wire in place. Using the ultrasound, scan 
caudally over the internal jugular vein to ensure that the guide wire travels smoothly in the vein down into the chest. Next, use a scalpel to make a skin nick at the site where the guide wire enters the skin. Thread the dilator over the guide wire and advance it into the skin. Depending on the size of the patient, only about one-third to one-half of the dilator should enter the skin. As you're advancing the dilator, make sure that the guide wire moves back and forth easily to prevent losing your tract and potentially injuring another structure such as the artery. Then remove your dilator and leave the guide wire in place. Depending on the central venous catheter kit being used, there may be a second larger dilator. Repeat this dilation process with the larger dilator. Next, thread the central venous catheter onto the guide wire and advance it into the vein. It should advance easily. Remove the guide wire from the central venous catheter and apply a clave or syringe to the port through which the guide wire was removed to prevent bleeding or entrainment of air. Aspirate and then flush from each port on the catheter with a syringe to ensure that all ports flush and draw easily. Finally, suture the catheter in place and apply a sterile dressing. You order a chest x-ray to confirm proper line placement. The image is shown below. Is the catheter okay to use? Yes. This chest x-ray shows that the catheter follows the expected course and terminates in the superior vena cava. What if the chest x-ray looked like this? This x-ray shows a central venous catheter that is not okay to use. It appears as though this central venous catheter was inserted into the carotid artery and from there entered the brachiocephalic artery, the aortic arch, and terminates in the descending aorta on the left side of the chest. In this case, do not remove the catheter and do not use it. Call vascular surgery for operative repair. The patient's potassium level is 6.8 milliequivalents per liter. The dialysis unit cannot accommodate her for three hours. What can you do in the meantime? The normal range for potassium is about 3.5 to 5.5 milliequivalents per liter, so this patient is severely hyperkalemic. In the setting of severe hyperkalemia, we have three goals. One is to electrically stabilize cardiac myocyte membranes to reduce the risk of arrhythmias. Two is to shift potassium intracellularly. And three is to remove potassium from the body. In order to stabilize cardiac myocyte membranes, administer calcium gluconate or calcium chloride intravenously. To shift potassium intracellularly, administer insulin, usually along with dextrose or glucose. Administer beta agonists such as albuterol or epinephrine. Can also give sodium bicarbonate. Finally, to remove potassium from the body, you can give a loop diuretic if the patient makes any urine. This may be helpful. And of course, really what this patient needs is dialysis. The patient's surgery will be rescheduled. She will have dialysis on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays as an outpatient. Which days are best for her to have her rescheduled surgery? Ideally, surgery should be done on the day after hemodialysis, so a Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday is best. The patient returns one month later. This time she is breathing comfortably on room air with an oxygen saturation of 98%. Her blood pressure is 144 over 77 millimeters mercury, and her pulse is 60 beats per minute. Her last hemodialysis was yesterday. What laboratory study should be checked prior to surgery? So it's always important to check a serum potassium level in all patients with end-stage renal disease prior to going back to the operating room. Her serum potassium level is 4.8 milliequivalents per liter, and you proceed to the operating room. You plan to use propofol and succinylcholine for induction and intubation. Are these drugs safe in someone with end-stage renal disease? Yes, both of these are safe.
the pharmacokinetics of propofol are not significantly altered in patients with end-stage renal disease. With regard to succinylcholine, an intubating dose of succinylcholine will cause a transient increase of serum potassium of about 0.5 milliequivalents per liter. So assuming her starting level is 4.8 milliequivalents per liter, we would expect her serum potassium level to transiently rise to about 5.3 milliequivalents per liter. This is still a safe level. As long as this patient doesn't have any other contraindication to succinylcholine, succinylcholine is safe in end-stage renal disease. Induction and intubation are uneventful. After 10 minutes, the patient has four twitches on train of four monitoring. You want to give a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. Which one will be least affected by her end-stage renal disease? Cisatricurium is the least affected by her end-stage renal disease. Metabolism of cisatricurium is independent of enzymes and therefore doesn't rely on liver or kidney function. Cisatricurium spontaneously degrades in the plasma depending only on temperature and pH. This is known as Hoffman elimination. Another option is rocuronium. Rocuronium is primarily metabolized by the liver. However, there is a slightly prolonged duration of action in end-stage renal disease due to the larger volume of distribution. In general, though, rocuronium is still considered safe in this population. During the operation, the surgeon complains that the patient is oozing. What can you do to help? Remember, patients with end-stage renal disease can have dysfunctional platelets. Toxin accumulation in end-stage renal disease can poison platelets, and this effect can persist even after dialysis. Additionally, dialysis can expose the patient to anticoagulant. To help with the oozing in this case, administration of desmopressin, DDAVP, will stimulate the release of von Willebrand's factor and factor VIII from endothelial cells and megakaryocytes. This can improve platelet function. It's important to remember that DDAVP should be given slowly to avoid flushing and hypotension. The coagulopathy improves with administration of DDAVP. In the recovery room, the patient complains of surgical site pain and receives morphine 5 mg intravenously. Several hours later, she becomes lethargic and seizes. What's going on? Morphine is metabolized by the liver into morphine-3-glucuronide, M3G, and morphine-6-glucuronide, M6G. Ordinarily, M3G and M6G are eliminated by the kidneys. In patients with end-stage renal disease, M3G and M6G accumulate in the bloodstream. M3G causes neuroexcitation and seizures. M6G is a potent mu agonist and causes sedation. We should also note that hydromorphone has similar metabolism. It is metabolized to hydromorphone-3-glucuronide, which can also accumulate in end-stage renal disease patients and cause seizures. Would meperidine have been a better choice? No. Meperidine is metabolized by the liver to normeperidine. Normeperidine is ordinarily eliminated by the kidneys. However, in end-stage renal disease, it accumulates in the bloodstream and also can cause seizures. What opioids are safest in end-stage renal disease? Fentanyl is a safe option. It is metabolized by the liver and there are no active metabolites. Remifentanil, another safe option, is metabolized in the bloodstream by nonspecific esterases, and this metabolism is independent of kidney function. Can the newly placed dialysis fistula be used for dialysis the day after surgery? No, it can take 12 weeks for a dialysis fistula to mature before it is ready for use. Beyond the pearls. Estrogen may be helpful in treating uremic platelet dysfunction by increasing production of thromboxane A and adenosine diphosphate ADP. There are two types of dialysis, 
hemodialysis, where the patient's blood is drawn into a circuit and it equilibrates with the dialysate fluid across a semi-permeable membrane and is then returned to the patient, and peritoneal dialysis, where dialysis fluid is instilled into the patient's peritoneal cavity where it equilibrates with their interstitial fluid and is then drained from their peritoneal cavity. If you'd like to learn more about this and other topics, read our book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.